Hello, everybody. This is G, and you're listening to the next great episode of the SITREP Podcast, your home for everything related to modern military gaming. And before we get started today, we are excited to announce a new partnership with Black Sight Studios. They have come on as our first official sponsor of this podcast, which we are very excited about. So if you have any needs in terrain, especially pre-colored terrain, modern or otherwise, make sure you're checking out Black Sight Studios. They are amazing people to work with. Their terrain is incredible. And we're not just saying that because they're paying us to say that, but it truly is. I have a demo table from them. And I've posted pictures of some Canadian uh, Army miniatures that I've recently painted using their terrain. So please make sure you give them a shout-out on their Facebook page and check out their offerings on their website. So let's get started. So with us this morning is Ralph. Hey, folks. And then Jim. Hello, everybody. So last week, or I should say our last episode, which was a couple weeks ago, uh, we had gone live as an experiment. It was a very last-minute thing. We've been talking, and we like the idea of doing a live show and getting you guys involved in the conversations. So our plan is to start doing a trial run of the podcast being streamed live on Saturdays. It would be 10 o'clock Central Standard Time, 11 o'clock Eastern Time, which is 9 o'clock Mountain Time, which is 8 o'clock Pacific Time, which is 4 o'clock BST. Right, Ralph? Does that sound right to you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, GMT. Okay, GMT. So that's our plan. We're going to set up a Discord server. More information to come so you guys can jump right into the conversation as we talk about everything related to modern military gaming. So... As we like to do and kind of catch up with everybody, uh, Jim, I think it's your turn to go first. I know you just released episode 10 of Op Center talking about arenas of conflict in Vietnam, which I found really um, interesting because it really does a nice job of breaking down each of the core zones. Um, do you want to give us a little highlight on that? Um, sure. Okay, so, um, yeah, it's part two of our ongoing Vietnam coverage on Op Center. It's, like you said, arenas of conflict. And the basic point of that episode was to say, okay, here's the Vietnam War. Here are the general areas in which the Vietnam War took place. And here are the ways in which these different sectors or areas, whatever you want to call it, the way these different areas of the Vietnam War are different from one another so that when you're setting these areas up on your tabletop you don't make any um you know noob kind of mistakes or whatever you know you don't put australians in the dmz you don't put marines in the mekong delta um you know little things like that um you know for people who like to do historical wargaming that's great uh, modern historical wargaming even better sometimes research is the more daunting part of it there is a subculture, unfortunately, within historical uh, gamers, modern and otherwise, that um, you know can sometimes be a little, you know, look down your nose at your table. Oh, that's not realistic. Huff puff. You know, that's not right. You know, you. So the op center is basically an idea where, look, we're going to do all the heavy lifting for you. Here are some basic things to look out for. 
First Corps in the north, lots of mountains, lots of Marines. Second Corps, this is where you see I Drang. This is where you see We Were Soldiers. Third Corps, that's where you see Platoon, Iron Triangle. Uh, most of the movies, that's where Saigon is. And then Fourth Corps, that's the Delta. Here are the kind of units that fought in these different areas. Here's what you should do on your tabletop. Here's just a few pointers. Here's a few things not to do. Don't put mountains in the Mekong Delta. Don't put, you know, South Koreans in First Corps. Don't put, you know... You know, little little pointers like that, little pitfalls to look out for. We also quickly cover the air war. Um, I know a lot of people like to do uh, Vietnam dogfights. We saw some of the stuff at Historicon. Where to have those, where not to have those, because there are different areas of the air war as well. And um, we also covered some of the peripheries, the uh, fighting in Laos, especially the fighting in Cambodia, some of the brief incursions that took place in there, some of the very heavy bombing that took place in there. And wherever you have bombing, you potentially have dogfights. I say potentially, because again, sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. Long story short, we're just trying to, you know, outline the war for people in different geographical areas because the movies and TV shows make it look like one big jungle, and it really wasn't. We wanted to spread it out and say, look, here are the different areas of Vietnam, here are the different kinds of battles, the different units, and uh, the different kind of games that you can have in these different areas so that your tables are at least historically approximate was the general gist of that whole episode. Awesome. So it goes into giving you some really good foundation on getting set up to play a more realistic game in, in the Vietnam setting. And I, I liked you had a lot of uh, miniatures examples in there. So um, it really gives people inspiration to get going on their Vietnam games. So uh, I really like it. So cool. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, Ralph, what have you been up to? Um, no, not really. Um, I picked up and got in the post, well, I pre-ordered and it came in the post this past week, the Korean source for bolt action. Uh-huh. So I've had a quick skim through that and a quick look through that, and I'm still in the opinion, looking at that book, they're going to do Vietnam. There's a bunch of stuff in that book that just pops straight out that's not in the original sort of bold action in this new rule systems, especially for air assault. Okay. Which seems to be um, more based around when I had a quick scan. It could be wrong. It was just a quick scan more about possibly dropping helicopters and using helicopters to deploy. So I seriously am of the opinion that that's going to be a f uh, ground, uh, like a framework for them to build off on and to, to create whatever additional rules that they feel they may need for doing Vietnam in the next three to four years, possibly. Maybe after third edition bull action. Okay. Don't know, but that's my opinion when I've sort of stepped through it and had a quick look. I haven't had a proper look, but it's a really nice book, actually. It's quite thick as well. It's, it's thicker than the normal um, campaign books that they've done. It looks oh, really? like it's double the thickness of a campaign book. So there's a lot in there, yeah. Excellent. So, um, is there anything in that, as far as a rule change, that stands out, or is it pretty much just a scenario settings book? No, there's rules as well. You've got, like I said, you've got the assault rules, you've got scenarios, you've got amphibious yeah. assault information, booby traps, clearing minefields. Uh -huh. I'm just, I've just picked it up here. Um, concealing mines. Um, trench warfare, 
Um, what else? Foxholes. Yep, there's dugins, foxholes, trenches, and gun emplacements. Um, weather hazards, generic units, aircraft in Korea, um, notable combatants. So you've got basically rules in the back. Uh-huh. Um, well, not so much the back, but just in the in the thing section in the in its section before doing different things. Um, it's 240 pages. The book. Oh, okay. That's so it is quite, yeah, it's quite a heavy book. I, th- I thought when you, when the first advertised first saw it, I thought, oh, it'll be a you know a campaign book, so you get additional unit information, instant scenarios. Yeah. No, there's a lot more than that. Oh, nice. There is a lot more. There's there's rules now as well for seasoned. Ca- so basically, because with it being Korea and being so close to World War Two, you'll be able to take units that you've say been playing in all that you can say were in the Pacific or in Europe and that have been transposed across to Korea and they, they get the seat there there's a seasoned unit which is for the US so um, um, and of course they they've been shown off on their website and stuff some of the like the terrain that they had built I got some Sarissa um, Far Eastern terrain which is the fact you see Sarissa do for the Pacific and they've sort of painted it up and put it on a board with um, with Korean on one side and US forces on the other or the Commonwealth on the other side so so yeah but it's a nice book it really is it's, it's I'll have to delve in and have a proper look awesome so, see what happens. so Jim I have a question uh, other than that yep. Ralph said that in the book there's stuff about trenches. Was there a lot of trench warfare in Korea? Where you find war, you find trenches. Yeah. There are trenches everywhere. There are probably trenches in Afghanistan right now. Um, whether it's going to be a trench war like we see you know, at uh, the Somme or Verdun, it's not going to be anything like that. But, yeah, there's definitely going to be trenches. Um North Koreans and Chinese, are, are, and later on North Vietnamese, were very good at digging trenches. We see a lot of trench warfare uh, advancing toward Khaesan in 68. Um, this is almost like the old, it's not so much like World War One trenches. Uh, I'm not sure what's in the book that Ralph was talking about, but just the kind of trench warfare you see in conflicts like Korea and Vietnam, you see almost like siege trenches where you would dig a trench line toward your enemy positions. So, okay, you've got an enemy position that you're trying to assault. Tian Ben Phu was a good example in, in 54. And, of course, Kaesan would be the same thing later. Um, so what we're looking at here is a nearly impregnable position that you're trying to get towards an assault. The, object, uh, the, the obstacle is how to get your infantry close enough to that trench line to where you can actually assault it. And the way you do it all right, so um, what we're trying to do here is advance a trench line towards that obstacle, and you, and you sort of zigzag the trench toward it, and you literally dig your way toward the position. So if that's what they're talking about when they say trench warfare, then you know that kind of thing does definitely happen um, in Southeast Asia and Korea and things like that. But really, any time you're looking at infantry on the battlefield, somebody's digging a foxhole, somebody's digging a trench. Uh, is it going to be the same thing as the Somme or Verdun? No. Or Passchendaele or anything like that in World War One? N- probably not. Certainly not on that scale. But yeah, there's definitely going to be trenches there to be sure. Awesome. Okay. And Sorry tunnels. about that, Jim. Um, as well. 
As a section sent of me tunnels. a file to review, and it's a whole bunch of Sergeant Hartman audio. I know the podcasters couldn't hear it because I had the mic muted, but I think I forgot to mute the mic for Jim, and I think I tripped him up a little bit. So that wasn't meant no, for I, you. I, so. No worries. I, I was just <laughs> I, I I know that scene. I totally recognized <laughs> it, and I was like, "There's a lot of vocabulary in that scene. We definitely well, don't need out there." On the- somebody sent me this and goes, "I loved your drill sergeant rant." From the last Uh-oh. episode, so I think you need to make it a kind of a regular thing. And here's some sound files to transition into it. I went, uh, let me find one that's clean. So far, yeah, there ain't that many. So. Good luck. <laughs> good luck on that one. Uh, profanity is one thing, but then, I mean, just all the, the racial slurs. It's just, oh, my yeah. Lord. Good old Sergeant Hartman. There you go. Yeah. Uh, Gunnery Sergeant of the Politically Uncorrect Platoon. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, so, yeah, I when, no, when you there's, think there's, there's um, go ahead, Ralph. In the Korean book, in the Korean book as well as, as I said, there's trenches and sorry, trenches and tunnels. There's rules for tunnels. Oh, okay. So, so, they're so tunnel rats, anybody? Yeah. Yeah, I think they're prepping for Vietnam. Yeah, they'd have to be because air assault, not really in Korea. Yeah, no. And um, no, yeah. and tunnels, not really in Korea. Uh, tunnels in Vietnam, not really in Vietnam. I mean, like we went over in the Op Center episode, there are tunnels in Vietnam. They're very famous. They're in all the movies. It's in a very, very small area. Um, where there were tunnels, there's a a large number of tunnels. Don't get me wrong, but it's, it's a pretty localized. Uh, pretty localized like that was part of the episode it was like look you want to have tunnels in your vietnam table great here's where you put them don't put them here 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 and there because yeah. then you know it's, 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 it's not going to work yeah there's rules for monsoon season as well and night fighting um it wasn't air assault sorry okay. it was amphibious assault but still there's for deep water and things like that and oh, also assault, definitely. city fighting Absolutely. Yeah. and city city fighting as well so they've actually put rules in for city fighting, which I don't think appear in any of the other rules. Moving through so you know, sewers and things like that. So you know, tat anybody? <laughs> in uh, um, well, yeah, but except so we're talking about you know, we're, we're talking about Korea, right? This is a book about Korea. Yeah, but, but that's yeah, what I'm, yeah, but I'm just thinking, you know, from from a rule standpoint, taking these rule set or bits of these rule set, you know, I like I said, I. I'm personally the opinion that they are gearing up for a Vietnam book in the, the, the future. Huh. It's logical, but also with all of these rules in here, you know, it's a good way of getting play, people to play test. Yep. Well, there's definitely amphibious operations in, uh, in uh, Korea. One of the most famous and um, complicated risky, I can't believe it worked, uh, Inchon landings. I am no fan of MacArthur. People on the site will know that I absolutely loathe MacArthur, and most people who read a lot of military history will loathe MacArthur. Um, MacArthur. However, at Inchon, you have to give it up to the man. That was his one thing he probably did right in his entire career, and it, 
yeah, that was a huge amphibious um, invasion. Um, First Marine, or I think it was First Marine Division. Uh, the Marine Corps in general was, of course, at the spear tip of that. Huge amphibious invasion, huge risk. Some of the steepest tides ever recorded. I can't remember what it was. I think it's something like 100 feet. It's an absurdly, or 30 meters or something. It's an absurdly steep tide. I don't know if they have rules for tides in there. But the tides at Inchon were so ridiculously severe because of the way that bay is shaped um, that the Marines go in, the first, first, second, third wave of the Marines go in, basically the first big, you know, shove, go in and then the tide goes out. Nobody can get to them. They're stranded high and dry. Um, they have to hold out 12 hours until the next tide comes in and now the Navy can get more troops, the second big group of waves in there, more artillery support, more logistical support. Uh, it was a gigantic gamble because, again, those first wave of Marines could have been easily wiped out, isolated, cut off, and wiped out. Um, how they survived is kind of a mystery. They, uh, What's the word I'm looking for here? The, the trade-off on the risk is landing here is so absurdly risky. How would anyone ever land here? And so the North Koreans had practically nobody guarding that position. So it's like this, this trade-off of risk and reward. It's do you land somewhere where it's obvious and you're going to go up against a huge number of enemy troops like Padi Calais in Normandy, or do you land where the Germans are never going to expect you to continue the Normandy example, where landing is very, very difficult for a whole host of physical reasons, geographical reasons, nautical reasons, but militarily it's easy because nobody expects you to land there and uh macarthur took that to the extreme and that that's inchon that's probably the biggest single amphibious attack uh that you see in korean war and of course you mentioned urban combat there's huge urban battles in korea yeah seoul uh pyongyang there, there there's a lot of big uh and night fighting especially once the chinese came across the yeah. chinese uh joined the war well, i think got, in november in the, 1950 in the and you're looking at you're, and you're looking at huge uh, Chinese human wave attacks. Almost immediately, the Chinese realized you can't do this in daylight. The Americans and the UN just have too much firepower, so they didn't throw out their human wave attack, but they started doing them at night. So urban combat, amphibious, and um, yeah, night attacks are three things you definitely need in a Korean in, in a Korean War game. Well, the first sort of section or the first big section, I've got the contents in here. So there's 17 scenarios. Covering okay. the the bat from the Battle of is it Osan? Okay. Right the way through to the Battle of the Outpost. Is it Haros? So that's July fifty-three. So you've got seventeen scenarios around different things. So you've got um Inchon and the the Yul y Yalul River, I think it is. Yep. Chinese uh intervention. UN counterattacks, Chinese offensives, and then you've, the last sort of section is July 51 to 53. Um, the beginning, of course, is the Korean invasion. There is a single page on airborne assaults. So, so yeah, and the additional rules. You've got raiding, city fighting, amphibious assaults. It's called dug-in, foxholes, trenches and gun pits, night fighting, yep. water hazards, aircraft, generic units and so it's got the rules for the units and stuff and then the rest of the book um, after you've got the scenarios is basically information on the, pe the, the people's army of North Korea Chinese army US and NATO and the uh, United Nations sorry and British Commonwealth and then some information on the periods and things like that so there is a you know a good chunk of history in there as well for people so to are most of the it's a really well put together book are most of the scenarios from like the first year of the war, fifty and fifty-one? More, 
more than that um, yeah, goes from uh, the first the, the first three scenarios are called the Korean invasion yep. um North Korea uh, does it, has it got a year in hasn't got a year in uh, 1950 is the first battle so that's the battle of Osan and then through two so that's set scenarios from each of the different battles there's uh Sort of the Battle of Hill um, eight, uh, 282. Um, you know, Bug Out, which I'm assuming could be a MASH style scenario by the sounds of it. Um, but there's 17 of them in here. Do they give dates for most of those scenarios? Uh, is what I'm asking. And are, are most some of those do, scenarios? some don't. Okay. Uh, so the thing about the Korean War is it lasts from, I think it's July, of 50 to, to, to mid-53. So it technically mm-hmm. lasts three years. But mm-hmm. as far as most of the history goes, it's really in that first year. Uh, mm-hmm. Really the first six months. After that, it settles down a great deal. So the, 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 here's, the Korea, here's the Korean War in like literally like two paragraphs. North Korea, South Korea, this is left over from when Japan – Japan owned Korea before in World War II. Afterwards, the Soviets and the United mm-hmm. States sort of split it up into a North and South Korea. So there – 50, in 1950, North Korea invades South Korea. That's the first couple of scenarios you're talking about there. All right, that gets pushed down pretty hard into what they call the Pusan perimeter. And mm-hmm. it's a tiny little corner in southeastern um, South Korea. It's like the southeast 5% of the country where the UN, the Americans, and all their allies are about to get thrown off the peninsula for good. Um, mm-hmm. That's when MacArthur launches his Incheon assault way up behind North Korean lines, and it completely destabilizes the front. And you have this huge offensive that not only retakes all of Korea and like a, all of South Korea in a matter of weeks, but then this is where it gets a little controversial. So I won't get too deep into the politics. He invades back into northern. North Korea, mm-hmm. or back into North Korea. This leads to the Yalu River that you were talking about. Yalu River yeah. is the river that forms the border between North Korea and China. And China's like, when are you going to stop? Mm-hmm. When are you going to stop? And Truman is saying, don't worry, I'll get him to stop. President Truman, Harry S. Truman, he's talking to MacArthur, stop, yeah. stop, stop. He doesn't stop. He gets too close to the Yalu River. The Chinese feel compelled to intervene. That's the bug out that you're talking about. And that's that huge mm-hmm. uh, retreat. Yeah back down into South Korea, and there the line more or less stabilizes. Um, and that's where you see Chosen Reservoir is way up by the Yale River. That's a big, famous Marine Corps battle. Shove all the way back yeah. down. And so the last two years well, of the war is so sort of a stalemate be- between, those, be- between those, two, uh, th- those, those two areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, scenario four, number four, is actually the Battle of Enchon. Yep, there it is. Um, in the which he works on points. So the the attacker has two thousand points. Okay. Def- defender has five hundred points. Yeah. Yeah. So it's 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 a big one. But yeah, that's that's scenario four. The way that they've divided the book is you've got se- the seventeen scenarios divided like amongst five key areas. So okay. one of them is like I said the the you know the invasion of North uh, North Korean invasion. And then you've got Incheon. Then you've got the Chinese intervention. And then the UN counterattacks stalemate is the last section and that's yeah. 51 to 53 so you know yeah it, that, that's that, that's two years out of the three years is that stalemate mm-hmm. yeah yep. so sort of the first 70 pages are scenarios the next 70 pages or so are more than 70 actually the next probably from page 70 right the way through to page 211 is 
unit of information and you know the, the stats and stuff for you know building a unit out across all of the different um uh, armies and nations involved and then the last sort of chunk of the book is the the rules and then you've got epilogue and and final thoughts and things like that and credits and all and things like um movies and tv shows and of course yes as mash has mentioned of course well it had to be uh, um really so but yeah on, on the whole nice book um got a free miniature with it got a, a u.s soldier with a bar uh in winter clothing so it's an it's an inch on not an inch on chosen uh valley miniature Here thing it is. Red, US US Marine the frozen win- chosen yeah the, win- the winter battle yeah that one so yeah, on the whole but when you're in the, the Marine Corps I'm sorry go ahead mm-hmm. um, the value for money for it is actually I would say it's probably one of the better bull action books to come out for its for its cost um, because you know you get your thin the my own opinion um, but this as a as a book is well worth the, the, the price of it to add additionally to if you if you're tired of playing in World War Two, to add something different. Yeah, if you're if you're in if you're in the military, especially if you're in the Marine Corps, um, mm-hmm. the Chosen Reservoir is one of maybe three battles, four maybe that mm-hmm. are uh, near mythological, nearly religious. I don't want to use that term loosely, but it's nearly religious importance. You got Bella mm-hmm. Wood, Chosen Reservoir, Iwo Jima, things like Quezon and Way City. It's um, it's a big deal. Every Thanksgiving, that's right at the end of November into mm-hmm. very first days of December 1950. It is absolutely insane. If you ever want to see where games, uh, where companies like 40, uh, where like Games Workshop and 40K get some of their ideas from, if you don't read the, the Chosen Reservoir and start thinking about Space Marines and Orcs, there's something wrong with you. I mean, it's one or two battalions of U.S. Marines. We're talking about maybe 1,200 men assaulted by eight Chinese divisions. A division is about 12,000 men times mm-hmm. eight. Um, of, uh, God knows on top of this frozen mountain somewhere, you know, right by this this frozen reservoir, um, right by the Chinese border. It's an absolutely insane battle. The fact that any of those guys made it out of there um, is insane. Um, but they did, and uh, it's one of those battles that you definitely read about. Uh, so I'm very glad that they included it in that um, in that book, and especially the uh, the special miniature. That's great. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. So it looks like they're going full steam ahead with this. So I'm excited. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's one of those things that I think it's it is kind of that transition to the bigger conflict of Vietnam. You know, because Korea only lasted three years, mm-hmm. U.S. participation. So. Well, technically speaking, it's still going on. So, technically, it never ended. Yeah, it know. hasn't ended. So it's it's interesting because then, if you think about it, you could do a whole timeline. You start in fifty, was it fifty one to fifty three? Yeah. Um, and you could say it never ended. You know, we're in a ceasefire. We never. You know, I've just had a thought as well. Now, and you could bring it all the yeah. way up to today. And yeah. that little crazy guy that's sitting in the, you know, in the big office up there in North Korea could just, hey, let's just go push across mm-hmm. the border. And then now you're opening it up to modern warfare. So. Pack a lunch. I've just had a thought as well. <laughs> just, just as a point of, yeah, I've just had a thought actually just, just, just 
a thought off the top of my head because the Korean book goes up to 53 and the French were in Indochina and 54. You could technically take some of the rule, some of the stuff from that. Hey, Ralph, you're, and, and you're, we're losing your connection. Sorry. Um, am I back? Yep. Um, what I was thinking was you could technically take bits of that book, create, and I can't remember the name of it, Jim will have to correct me, but the what became the NVA, and use French and use late war French and technically NVA and use rules from that book to do the French fighting. Okay. Oh, so yeah. technically at the start, which was fifty-four. First so, Indochina you know, War goes from yeah, first Indochina War goes from nineteen forty-five. It starts immediately mm -hmm. after World War Two. Goes to nineteen fifty-four, yep. and yeah, so yep. you see colonial French up against the Viet Minh. Mm -hmm. So you, you could do the Viet Minh in French using that rule book, and you've you've got the start of the you know of of sort of the Vietnam conflict. Yeah. So I don't know. There's another avenue to open up, sort of. Yeah. Cool. Absolutely. All right. So a couple things that come to mind. First thing is, Jim, you have a catchphrase. Oh uh, yeah, I know. Long story short. Long <laughs> oh, story short. There it is. So, because we. That's what she said. No, I'm just not like, I'm not going there. Because we enjoy your little catchphrases, and because every personality needs one we have taken your catchphrase and made it into a game oh no <laughs> i warned you not to do this i was expecting you to do t-shirt actually and oh, so gosh. the game is we have created a official sit rep podcast big jim ariskany shot glass and oh, no. with this shot glass every time jim in his conversations on a stream or anything goes long story short you take a drink. So, uh, you're you're going to have me murdering people all across the world. <laughs> so, Alcohol um, poisoning just went up 82%. <laughs> so believe it or not, we do actually have an official shot glass on our Zazzle store. Um, as we've been sitting here talking about Korea, I've actually redesigned it. Um, that we will ship direct if people want to order it once I get them in. It's a double. The one on Zazzle is only one side, and it just says, long story short, in quotes, Ariskany. The, the new one is going to have the SITREP logo on one side and, long story short, Ariskany on the back side. So that will be the official drinking game. So whenever you're sitting back and enjoying the lore of the Big Jim Ariskany, and he says, long story short, you will be able to warm your innards with a fine whiskey or brandy or whatever it is that you like to uh, throw down. So. Um, See, if I knew I was going to get my own catchphrase, I would have thought about one and come up with a better one than that, but that's okay. <laughs> yes, but it's when it's natural and it just comes out and flows. So there you go. Look for the official shot get glass, and all of our Patreon supporters at the top level will be getting one for free. So we'll be sending those out to you guys very shortly once we get them in from the uh, printers. So um, we hope everybody enjoys that little collectible item. Um and we can all enjoy those podcasts and streams just that much more, especially as the cold months are set upon us. So, there you go. Yep. Yeah, do not play that game, do not play that drinking game during Panzer Leader, because those streams can last like nine hours. <laughs> and there's a lot of long stories in Panzer Leader that have to be made very, very short. Before uh, you know it, people are going to be calling ambulances. 
So, yeah, um, we're looking forward to that. Um, yeah, that's pretty awesome. Uh, the other thing is, um, what was it now? There are several, a lot of good stuff you guys are uh, posting in... Um, I don't get that, but it, okay. Um, in our Facebook group, and we really appreciate that. We are so close to 300 people um, on our Facebook page. So we are definitely growing. We are three people short on our Twitch page, which gets us the official affiliate status, whichever that oh, is. So there you go. let's go, people. Drive those people home. Um, so yeah, a lot of good stuff. Chris is printing up some stuff. We've, uh, Jim was so kind to set up a separate playlist just for Chris's stuff from walkabout games. Um, and I wanted to talk about a little bit of funny humor. One of them is, did you guys see that? Well, Jim, unfortunately you got to get a Facebook something. If it's a, uh, you know, yeah. uh, you know, uh, you're probably right. Uh, but somebody posted, uh, Chris did. A safety warning for all our tax drivers out there. If, so if you're driving a technical, if you belong to a, uh, yes. uh, a Merc <laughs> army or an unorganized militia and you've strapped ungodly big weapons to very small pick up trucks and you take it at a very sharp corner, this is what happens, people. This is our public service announcement for today. Do not put an overly large size weapon on the back of a very small Toyota pickup and then drive at 100 miles an hour and take a sharp corner. Because the center of gravity will be off. And you will turtle your technical. And your people in the back are just eliminated. Which is fine for us good guys. It's one less bonehead that we have to worry about. So There you go. Uh, I and and probably uh, two less. What are those? Most probably a ZU-23-2, 23-millimeter auto cannons is the most common oversized weapon I see on those technicals. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that thing is huge. I think it weighs about three tons. And you stick that thing in the back of a truck, and it's going to be up on top of the truck. And those trucks are usually, you know, like you said, like little Toyotas or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm amazed they, 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 they fire sideways and don't flip over the truck, to be honest. But, yeah. This looks like a, uh, was it a Dusk on the back of this thing? Yeah. Oh, that, that's, that, that's 106 pounds. Yeah, that's uh, no, it's bigger than that. Yeah, that's probably going to – the most common one I see is either a one- or a two-barreled ZU-23- well, it's a ZU-23 if it's one-barrel, ZU-23-2 if it's a double-barrel. This is what we see on the Shulka, except the Shulka has four of them. Yeah. So it's mm -hmm. the same weapon, but it's only two of them. They're mounted side-by-side. Side. It's a very, very common Soviet anti-aircraft mount from back in the day. These things are freaking everywhere. You see them in Vietnam, everywhere. And uh, they're still around, and uh, there's plenty of ammo for it You know, in various – you know, cubby holes around the world. And so what a lot of these jokers do is they'll just take that thing and they'll bolt it to the back of a, um, back of a pickup truck. It won't do anything against aircraft, um, unless maybe helicopters, but I doubt even that cause there's no radar guidance. Uh -huh. Um, but I tell you what, it'll make a mess of some infantry. If you have some infantry in a building or you need to clear them out, send about, you know, a three second burst from that 23-2 uh, into that building. They're going to, you know, be evicted in short order. The problem is, long story short, ah. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the problem is it has an incredible amount of recoil, especially on a sustained burst. And again, I don't know how they don't flip these trucks over. Yeah. Well, it's, it, it's, did like, you see uh, the, remember the strikers? Was it the strikers? They oh, yeah. Big ass. Uh, was it, uh, at the 105? Yeah, 105 on. And yeah. It, it rocks so much. 
you're like, it's got to fall over. It's got to fall over. Fire to the front, not to the sides. <laughs> but yeah, it's just, a, you know. Did you see the picture on the Mob G? Did you see the picture on the Mob Miniature Warfare one the, the, that somebody posted? It's a Roomba with a claymore yes. attached. I saw that this morning. So, Jim, there is a uh, thing about, uh, you know, telling your kids for the millionth time to take off their shoes in the house. And yep. then somebody strapped a claymore to the top of a Roomba robot uh, vacuum. With a webcam. My, my favorite uh, meme. That's, that's, that's the Goliath tank <laughs> from World War II returned at the modern age. Right. So my favorite meme that I've seen recently involving a claymore is, you know, it's a really bad day when you forget which way is front. You know, there you go. because it says <laughs> right on a claymore, if you're not familiar with claymores, front, this yeah. front towards enemy. Right. In huge font that takes up yeah. the entire front of the mine. Yeah. yeah. So, and also, if you look at it, it's curved, right? It's mm-hmm. convex yep. or concave, depending on which way you're looking at it. So you it you kind of mm-hmm. get an idea which way it's going to blow, right? So, yeah, claymores are a lot of fun. Not you don't want to be guys, right, behi- but you don't want to be right behind it when one goes off. Yeah, but it is generally directed frontwards. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, if you're the bad guys, it's not fun, but. Uh, I loved blowing off claymores. They were just, we used to uh, use them to clear LZs. You know, if you had a lot of scrub, you could put a couple up and just, you know, and then just clear it out. So, especially emergency, um, um, emergency landscaping. Yep. So, you know, it's one of those things that um, you wouldn't want to turn in. You know, a lot of times you had to turn in unused uh, ammo, you know, and you had to count it and all that stuff. It was just easier to blow it up. So that's why they have that's why they have final protective fires. <laughs> that, that was, no, seriously, that was literally the point of them. Is you don't really want to do all this paperwork, do you? It's like the last day of the exercise, and you know, final protective fire. The 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 tactical technical reason is, look, we're evacuating this area, and you know, the more firepower we throw out, the more of our people are going to get out of this area safely. Number one, number two, the the less ammo we have to haul. We, you know, it means more people that we can fit on the chopper. Number three, you can't leave it for the enemy. So on the battlefield, it's, it's, they, I don't know what they call it in the army, but in the mil, and the Marines used to call it the FPF, final protective fire. Literally just dump it. Everything you've got, just fire it off now and we're, we're getting the hell out of here because we can't leave it for the enemy. Um, that, that almost came across kind of as an excuse. Because what it really is, is because for every time you're really in combat, you're on exercise a hundred times. And those hundred times, you don't really want to do all that paperwork to turn all this ammo back in. You know, just light it up, dude. You're out in the middle of North Carolina somewhere or New Mexico or Southern California if you're out of 29 stumps. Just light it up, dude. Just (laughs) put on a nice show and then, uh, yeah, get the hell out of there. Open up a beer and call it a weekend. There you go. There you go. Because I hated counting brass. You know, and pick the grass up. Yep. So there's there, there's big money in it though. There, there's yeah, the military saves a lot of money on that. So there's a reason they have you do that. Yeah. The brass is almost more expensive than the bullet. I mean, it's right next to our supply warehouse. I know everyone loves you know risking supply stores. It was Ammo Supply Point and you know the ASP, and they had those giant. Um, you, you see them in hotels sometimes. Those huge gray. Uh, bins on rollers that they used to push around the um, like the gigantic piles of like linen that you see in like the laundry section of a of a of a, 
of a hotel. Uh-huh. They had those things absolutely heaping full. So you know how big it is. It's like almost the size of a small minivan or whatever, you know. They had these things absolutely heaping full of uh, 223 Remington, you know, 556 press. Yeah. And then there was one over there for 762, and there was one over there for, you know, 50s or whatever. I mean, it was just absolutely huge amounts of brass that they can, you know, they sell, they recycle, they reload with more ammo. You know, you can actually reuse it if you replace the primers or whatever. Yeah. yeah they, they save a lot of money. There's, there's, there's big, big money in that. Awesome. Well, you know, it's just another wonderful thing about the military. So the other thing I wanted to talk about uh, that was posted on our Facebook page is that Tabletop Simulations is going to Kickstarter August 28th. And let me make sure I find it. And they're bringing their Warpig Special Operations Truck. Uh, it's going to be a short Kickstarter, only yeah. 15 days. Uh, it basically looks like, would you call it a Hemet with the roof removed and the sides removed, essentially? You got a Mod Deuce uh, mount in the bed. You got a 249 uh, mount in the passenger side of the cab. It looks like you've got some... Um, Oh, what is the official term? The runway, metal runway. Um, oh, what's it called? I know what you mean. Yeah, it's like it's like corrugated, yeah. but like with a million little holes mm-hmm. in it. Yeah, they got that on the sides of the truck, and they've of course got rucksacks, and it looks pretty cool. So, I mean, if you're looking for a, a special vehicle, uh, you could definitely go down that route. It's going to be 28 millimeter scale. Um, so let's buy. Go ahead, Jim. They had they, they had this on on tabletop, didn't they? Briefly. Uh, yeah, I it's, think it's, they showed it off at Historicon, didn't they? It's it's a, it's, it's it's a rework of the M1068, I think. Yeah. Okay. Oh. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think I've seen that. Yeah, it, it, it looks almost like a modern version of the old LRDG trucks. LRDG trucks from. Uh, yeah. World War II. That's a good okay. Thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good yeah. We're, we're talking about the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, and they they were saying it. Uh, they would use it in. Um, so I know there's ODA. Apparently there's an ODB as well. Operational Detachment Bravo. Uh-huh. Uh, maybe you can correct me on that. Yeah, it is. And that's okay. That's usually the people that use those. And usually, like these guys will drive out to wherever they need to go, and then the ODB will stay there with the truck. The ODA takes out from the truck and then conducts the mission. Falls back to the rally point, which is the truck, which could be you know relocated somewhere else yep. so it's not easy to come back to, and then you know they get home, you know that way. Uh, I'm surprised people still use that stuff. I guess a helicopter is too noisy or too obvious, or there are not always helicopters available. Um, well, you know, part of it is is you you know sometimes you have limited assets. Uh, a helicopter only has so much range. You know, there are limitations to the grand old helicopter. Believe it or not. As much as it pains me to say, they're not always appropriate for every use. So, um, yeah. So, um, you know. Did that, did that hurt to say it, did it, Jake? It hurt. Was that painful it, it to hurt, say? It hurt me down to the core of my being. Um, but, you know, there are appropriate uses for all tools, and that helicopter's a tool. Hey, I said something nice about MacArthur today, so we, we can all take it <laughs> for the team. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I mean, this looks really great. Um, go, go ahead, Ralph. Yeah. So Spectre posted up. Well, it was was it Ivan or Michael Charge posted up on their thing. The Spectre showed off two resins that are going to metal, uh, and it's two um, what looks like H, uh, HVT minis. Yes. One's uh, like an African general, and the other one looks like an Eastern European. Yep. General. And I think the African one was one of their 
original Kickstarter minis getting redone. Awesome. But don't quote me on that. You know, um, I don't know so they, they, I, they're coming out. So. I don't know how I missed out on their Kickstarter. I, I must have totally been underwater somewhere to miss out on that. I totally had no idea they had a Kickstarter to start it off. I'm kicking myself because I, I saw the Kickstarter after it had finished and they had gone live with their first edition site and they had the original minis. Yeah. And then they had the thing with the Kickstarter because in their Kickstarter they had um, some buildings. I don't know if they did them, um, but they did have some buildings and stuff as well as part of the, some of the stress calls. Awesome. So speaking of uh, um, so, stuff, but on, yes, I think you know that's one that people. Yeah, on Facebook, um, Chris posted some things about making some impact areas or craters. Mm-hmm. Uh, they look pretty good, um, and then. Uh, guys over at Footsore, uh, Tim, he's has a speed painting on multicam camouflage. Uh, I'll have to watch a video. I haven't had a chance to watch it yet. It's been a crazy week. Speaking of videos, again, Go. this is just prelim discussion, so I don't want anybody getting crazy excited. Andy reached out to me um, over, the, you know, uh, OTT had their 40K weekend gaming uh, thing last weekend and mm-hmm. I guess he cornered Warren at some point to talk about moderns and he reached out to me and Ralph you know about this because I think he reached originally through the OT uh, yeah. through the sit rep channel and Warren is extremely excited about the idea of Andy and I getting together and filming some speed painting painting videos on modern camouflage and doing some uh I don't know if you want to call it a tutorial or just, hey, this is how he does his painting and this is how I do my painting. Um, so mm-hmm. the idea is to fly over to Ireland at some point and uh, do some videos and post them up. So I thought that was really cool. So That would be awesome. Yeah. So uh, we'll have to see how that goes. So speaking of other videos, Jim. Yeah, I've got a bunch of. Go ahead. Ralph, you're still broke up. I've got a bunch really of fuzzy. metals. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's my internet providers being awkward. Um, I've got a bunch of metals that I'm going over to the guys in OTT to get them started with their, their moderns because yeah. I think they need some. Awesome. So, so and then we're still trying to get all that I'm going to go to a new home. I'm going to I'm going to play it for what? Very cool. So um, we're still trying to get um, the guys on Spectre on board for a, a war gaming weekend as well. Um, Still hoping to get that going. But, Jim, I wanted to talk about uh, the CQB live play you did on the, was it the 11th, last Saturday? Okay. Uh, the Gulf War Panzer League. There you go. Yep. Um, I really, really enjoyed that. And, um, man, seeing Apaches was cool. Yeah, they're nice. Uh, I do um, want to play that edition with you. Um, I think cool. uh, I would have a really good time on that. I mean, I, I like the flexibility of how you're able to take one of my ultimate favorite classic Avalon Hill games and update it, you know, and bring it into a relevant time period for us slash younger slash older people. So I am admittedly, full, full disclosure, not the first to do so. Um, there are entire groups. Northeast Atlanta Gaming is a group club up in, you know, Georgia, obviously, who they do little else. They took um, 
Panzer leader or Panzer Blitz, you know, everybody's really worse. It's all really one game at this point. It's all kind of mashed together. Yeah. Technically, there's three games Panzer Blitz, Panzer leader, everybody's really worse. Think of them as overall Panzer, whatever you want to call it. First, second, and third edition is probably the best way to think of it. But anyway, they take that. We'll call it Arabic really worse. They take that and they sort of uh, update it to like the, what we usually call Team Yankee era. You know, the assault by GDW, the original 1980s, you know, Cold War gone hot kind of stuff. And uh, then they take it from there. So other people have been doing this. Um, Toshash Miniatures is a company where they took Panzer Leader. I guess they got the license for Multiman Publishing or something. I don't know how. They're the people who technically own Panzer Leader now. And they updated and they released this expansion called TCME, Tactical Combat Middle East. And that's where I got some of the values, although not all of them, because I don't agree with some of their values. But that's where they got the general idea of doing not only 1991, but 2003 Iraqi Freedom in Panzer Leader. Oh, okay. It is possible. They have done it. They produce a lot of the minis for it or whatever, and a lot of the um, you know, a lot of the new special rules or whatever, which some of them I did use, some of them I didn't use. And um, the problem is they are Panzer Blitz purists. So they built, like the way the math works in that game, they built all their counters based on Panzer Blitz conversion formulas, for lack of a better word. And that's great. I tend to more like Panzer Leader and then the later edition Arab-Israeli Wars, where some of the different rules are a little different or whatever. So I'm having to redesign some of the counters. Of course, I put my own graphics in them because, you know... The, the, the graphics just look a little bit nicer. And um, they did invent some new uh, weapons classes. Arab Israeli Wars brought in the G class for uh, guided missiles. Uh-huh. Um, Toshash Miniatures brought in the LGB, laser guided bomb. They brought in uh, MLRS strikes for the submunitions and all that cluster bomb stuff. It's insanely powerful. And they brought in um, B 52 bombing strikes. So that's where you call in an airstrike and you point out a hex and you say, I'm going to put my points in that hex. B-52 bombing strike says my airstrike starts there. And then it goes, I think it's six hexes in a straight line from there. And it's just a bomb. It's just boom, 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 in that straight line right across the desert. Um, it's absolutely insane. The amount of devastation. The, if there's ever... Well, this is one of the things we're going to do in part three of the Vietnam. We're going to talk about asymmetrical wargaming uh-huh. and what that actually means. The reason I bring that up now is because if there was ever an asymmetrical game, it's uh, it's 1991 Gulf War. That is one of the most unfair wars there's ever been. And to make that into a war game where it's not completely pointless and frustrating to play the Iraqis is actually kind of a challenge. Um, it is possible. And Toshash Miniatures, I think, did a great job in writing rules and victory conditions that say, look, you're the Israeli player. You, By turn five, you're going to be a grease spot. You know, you're going to be nothing. They're going to have MLRSs, B-52s, M1 Abrams, A1s, A-10 Warthogs. I mean, come on. It's like beyond unfair. But you can still win the game because, number one, you get X amount of victory points for every, you know, the Americans have to lose basically no units. They have to cross the entire table because this is Schwarzkopf's left hook. You have to cross a huge stretch of desert in like two days in order to get behind the Republican Guard before they can pull out of um, 
before you can pull out of uh, Kuwait, especially once the Marines hit the front of Kuwait and they hit it so hard that what was supposed to be a fixing attack became a full-on frontal assault that almost wrecked Schwarzkopf's plan. Um, that's literally like something that the Marines are perversely proud of. You know, we're so aggressive and strong in our frontal attacks right. that um, we literally almost wrecked Schwarzkopf's plan. The Army has to have time to get behind the enemy first, guys. Slow down. Slow your roll just a little bit. Uh, the Marines are sometimes a little tough to control once, uh, once you let them off the leash a little bit. <laughs> um, so the point in game terms is that the Army, because you're usually playing the Army in Toshash Measures, TCME, you have to cross the entire table. You have to take every objective. You have to take no losses. You have to completely table the enemy and, oh, you've got six turns to do it. You're still standing here. You know, get going. Go, 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 go. You know, and the Iraqis get points just for slowing you down a little bit. They get points for, you know, they get points not only for destroying American units, but for pinning enemy units. Every time an Iraqi unit manages to pin an American platoon, two or three victory points for the Iraqi player. You don't even have to destroy units. You just slow them down. You pin them down. Boom, points to the Iraqi player. And it becomes surprisingly difficult. I mean, ask anybody who was in the Gulf War, especially unit commanders, you know, what was the tough part about that war, you know, the, any of those units in Seventh Corps, Eighteenth uh, Air Mobile Corps, uh, the French were out there, way off to on, on the on Schwarzkopf's left flank. It's always we had to cross so much terrain. We had no roads, we had no landmarks. It was the first time anyone ever really used GPS in combat or whatever. You know, it's absolutely insane the obstacles that you have to overcome besides just the Iraqis. And um, yeah, I think the game does a pretty good job at that. Um, it's just an expansion for Panzer Leader, so it's not a full game in and of itself. Uh, it is available online for purchase, so you know if you want to go buy it, you know, check it out. I think you do need Panzer Leader to actually get its full full use out of it, or Panzer Blitz or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, so that that was the starting point for that. So I took that and kind of cleaned it up, kind of translated it into my language or whatever you want to call it, um, the way I play Panzer Leader. It's still not right. There's a lot of mistakes in those counters. And uh, like you were pointing out in the stream, Gianna, there's a lot of counters that I still have to do. I still have to create those uh, Kiowa uh, scout helicopters. Um, there's all kinds of American infantry, mortar, artillery units I haven't created yet. That was literally, I'm streaming at 2 p.m. It's now 10 a.m., I'm watching one of the 40K streams because LSR2590 is running it. And I'm like, what am I going to stream in four hours? Ah, the hell with it. Let me build two armies and you know, try them out. And, you know, one hour to build the Americans, one hour to build the Iraqis, one hour to build the map, one hour to, uh, like, prep for the stream or whatever, maybe grab some lunch. And, you know, by 2 o'clock we were gaming. So it's rough and ready. There's a little bit of cleanup work to do on that. But, um, yeah, I think it worked pretty well. And, uh, yeah, if you, give me like a week or two to clean it up, especially with op center, maybe three weeks uh-huh. and, um, maybe longer. Cause I'll bring something else up in just two seconds. Okay. And we can definitely try that out. Perfect. And the reason I say, uh, give me a little bit of time is because what we're also doing, this isn't really moderns. We're doing 1939 right now, full scale, with uh, that's on on tabletop and also some of our Twitch streams. Oh, okay. uh, our Twitch stream on Thursday was about Poland. Um, this is Yavasa or Piotr over on on tabletop, and we're building up for the 80th anniversary, September 1st, 1939, of the start of World War II in Europe. So we're working on that. In fact, we're going to be streaming that. Uh, I'm sorry, we're going to have a live web game. We won't be streaming it, but a live game on that in about two hours, um, a time of recording this. Um, we might put excerpts up uh, up on YouTube, you know, later on during the week. 
And the other reason is, okay, by the time we get done with Vietnam, in the op center, by the time we get done with Poland, uh, it's going to be the middle of September. Mm-hmm. And if I remember correctly, you and I had another project on the cards for the middle of September 2019. Hmm. Were we still going to do 75th of Market Garden? Oh, yeah. There you go. Yeah, see, I shouldn't have reminded you. <laughs> I, I, I could have gotten out of two weeks of work there. <laughs> uh, so um, what are you huh? thinking? Are you thinking of using Storm over Arnhem? Or are you thinking bigger? Um, uh. If you want to do Storm over Arnhem, you can run that. Yeah. And I'll, I'll definitely participate. Um, now, as far as what we could run uh, yeah. with our with the things I do, there's there's totally two ways. Uh, do it on the squad level with Valor and Victory, which would be easier than Pi. Yeah, because I wouldn't even have to. I wouldn't even have to build anything. Um, or we do it in Panzer Leader, which again, I, I probably, I'd, ha- I'd have to draw some of the maps. But I've got Germans and Americans and British uh, already drawn up uh, counterwise. World War II Panzer Leader. That's literally Panzer Leader's home. Um, that's, you have, you know, you have to build practically nothing. It's all pretty much built for you. We have to make up some, uh, some, we have to pick out what battles we wanted to do, what engagements specifically we wanted to do uh-huh. in Market Garden, you know, pick certain key spots. And then we could just build uh Panzer Leader scenarios from there. Panzer Leader scenarios is more the ground forces, um, as far as like once the paratroopers are on the ground right. and, uh, meeting up with, uh, the armor and mechanized infantry of 30 Corps versus German, I think it's 9th and 10th SS Panzer Divisions yeah. in relatively large battalion-level combat, battalion plus, regiment, and so on. Uh, Valor and Victory is each piece is only a squad and you have maybe 12 squads on the table. You're basically a company commander, maybe a company plus, and you're in a village and you have a firefight. It's much more skirmish level. Gotcha. Well, I have an mostly, idea. Mostly infantry. Uh, tanks are there, but not really. They don't They don't really do tanks well. Pange Leader, of course, is the opposite. Much yeah. bigger battles, a lot more tanks. So, if I, if I, I might have my towns mixed up, but I'm trying to remember this, and please correct me if I've got it mixed up, Jim. 30 Corps made it to 9 Megan, and that's where they held up because the Brits at that time had pretty much collapsed. Was it 9 Megan or Eindhoven? No, Eindhoven was first. That yeah, was they made it through Eindhoven relatively quickly. Yeah, Eindhoven was the 101st area, and 82nd yeah. had 9 Megan. Yeah. And it was just outside of 9 Megan that 30 Corps held up because that's when they learned that the they finally got some radio communication with Colonel Frost and everybody. Um that the British had finally ran out of everything and collapsed and they were withdrawing. And that's when they set up the, the plan to withdraw what was remaining of the Brits that could. Um, so what if we played through to see if we could do a breakthrough on Panzer Leader and okay. then did Baylor and Victory for the Brits in Arnhem? That would be very easy to do. Yep, we do either one of those. That, well, I'm saying let's do both. Oh, yeah, yeah. One week well, yeah, we, we do Panzer Leader to see the what if could we have gotten there, you know? However you want to do it, because you, you, right. you create really good scenarios. Well, we, we, have, to, we have to do a little bit of, um, we have to take a, which is perfectly fine. This is literally the point of historical wargaming. We have to take a little bit of liberty with, uh, with the history. Right. So the British still had plenty of combat power at yeah. Nijmegen. The pro- you know, the problem is, um, and the movie um, A Bridge Too Far does a pretty good job at this. I mean, at least for a movie, in that their axes of advance was extremely narrow. Right. Um, I think the movie says they had one major highway. It's not exactly. They had one major highway and a couple small supporting roads. They had one big road. Right. 
that they could use. And um, so a military advance on the operational scale, I mean, a Corps is at least three divisions. You're talking about 70 to 100,000 men. This is a huge, huge effort pushing up this road. And if you really only have one highway to do that in, and this is also in Holland, you can't just drive off-road. Because exactly. off-road is usually either mud or underwater. Um so it, it becomes very um, – or the Netherlands, whatever you want to call it. Uh, it becomes very you know, touchy as far as whether or not you can get up, get up this highway. And as you know, this, this major force, this 30-core force, pushes up this road, it gets more and more elongated and stretched out as delays and delays and delays. So the tanks are up front. They're, do, they're, they're, they're doing pretty good. Um, they've taken some losses, but they're nowhere near you know, any kind of operational – you know, problem, uh-huh. but the but the problem now is that they have no artillery or even more importantly infantry support, and you don't just walk into a town with tanks. Nope, you're, sure you're that's not going to work. That's the rule one, page one on you know the God of War rulebook: never send tanks into a town, especially unsupported by infantry. Um, so they were waiting, they were waiting, they were waiting, and then it got to the point where it's like, okay. Well, again, the movie does a pretty good job at this. Uh, there's that radio call where it was like, I don't know if it's a question of you coming for us or us coming for you. Right. Because you know, we're now to the point where even if you reached us, we wouldn't be able to hold it. The Germans are bringing in more and more reinforcements. So we'd have to play around with the history a little bit and say, okay, okay 30 core reaches Nijmegen in a little bit better shape. And maybe not so much tactically, like they still have plenty of combat power, but operationally, more supply trains are closer to the forward spearhead more infantry more artillery can we you know if things had happened a little bit better during the previous couple days along that highway maybe now that front punching fist you know area Uh that spearhead of 30 core is a little bit more again it was strong enough it just wasn't put together enough is it better put together we can build a scenario based on that and then yeah we can either do um uh the the main part of the the, the bridge because again if correct me if i'm wrong wasn't that airhead in in uh, arnhem in two separate places yeah because there remember was, they uh, kept pushing out the uh drop zones further and further out because they were supposed to drop within oh my gosh it was only a couple miles from the actual town and then they kept saying well it's not suitable for gliders and they had to push it out and then they had aircraft issue it was a disaster before they even took off. So yeah. Um, so they, we had I can't. I'm probably mispronouncing his name. Major General Ukwart. Yeah. I probably just mispronounced his name. He's with the main body somewhere near Arnhem or in a different part of Arnhem. No, he, he and didn't then we have to Arnhem. Okay, he, he was stuck outside with the main body, Colonel Frost, and right. He's actually on the bridge. It was. I think I want to say it was Second Battalion. I, I can't remember 100%, but they, her second para, they got into um, Arnhem, in, and they were the ones that got cut off, and Urquit could not get in. Um, he almost got captured at one point. So as he tried to sneak into Arnhem to see what was going on, because the radios didn't work, because they had yep. the wrong crystal sets. So he got so far to the suburbs of Arnhem and almost got captured, and then finally was able to escape back to his rally points. Um, it just was a disaster. And then you have the third wave, which is the Poles, and, yep. and that, that, that and didn't those go anywhere. Guys. <laughs> those yeah. poor guys. They landed in, a, 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 I think it was a captured um, LZ at that by that point, and they just got massacred. 
Well, uh, even if they didn't hold the landing grounds, paratroopers, especially in daylight, rely mostly on surprise. Yeah. The whole point of a paratrooper is you now have an infantry force, the last place the enemy expected it. Exactly. You're now dropping an, air, an airborne force in daylight on like day five of, a, of an offensive. Yeah. I think the Germans know you're there by day five. You think? <laughs> you think, you know? So forget about surprise. Yeah. And it's like you're going to hide a fleet of a thousand Dakotas in the sky. There's not a lot of trees in the sky you can hide behind, um, especially in broad daylight. So, yeah, I don't was, know. It was uh, just poor planning all around. When everything fell apart, they sh- I don't want to say it was a certain commanding general's folly and ego that got in the way, but I'm going to say his ego got in the way, and no matter what, we're doing this. And they should have scrubbed it when they everything fell apart. So, but it is what it is. Um, they should have scrubbed it before they launched, like they'd scrubbed like 20 missions before that. Yeah. When Aerial Recon, again, the movie, I keep re- I keep referencing the movie, which I usually don't do, but that's actually the exception to the rule. They did a the good movie's job actually the movie. pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. When, you know, a little bit before, they started taking photographs of heavy German armor in the area. Yeah. And it was like, look, the whole point of this offensive was to strike into a void where there's not a lot of German defense, where the German units that are there are militia, they're Volksturm, they're, you know, 15 year old kids and grandfathers, you know, maybe then you can put together a one, two, three, four, a six or seven division offensive in five days, which is absurd. Uh-huh. But maybe you could just barely get away with it if you're basically landing in, in a free, you know, area where the Germans don't really have any defense. Oh, the Germans have at least one SS Panzer Division. Oh, two SS Panzer Divisions. Okay, you know what? Cancel the mission. They kept going with it and... Uh, Again, the history speaks for itself. What's actually kind of crazy is that they almost pulled it off. Yeah. They got that's, that's, close. Really, that's the really crazy part. Yeah. So, okay. Well, we'll definitely um, talk more about that, and I'm really excited to see that happen. So, um, time for the Drill Sergeant rant of the week. Uh-oh. So. This might be another shot glass, by the way. <laughs> I'm going to actually be kind on this one. Um Here's my rant. Kickstarter. I know, Jim, you don't do Kickstarter projects. Ralph, you have done Kickstarter projects. Yep, I I have. I've done quite a few Kickstarter projects. I think I've done almost 100 Kickstarter projects. Shoof. Um, There's a program for that. I know there is. Um, (laughs) It's a 12 steps, man. (laughs) You know, I'm a firm believer in the true purpose of Kickstarter to support those people who had a great idea but just can't find conventional funding for their project. I mean, that's what Kickstarter was about. When you have the bigger companies who you know have financial backing yet still use Kickstarter as a pre-order system, if you will, or whatever, then that's when it becomes a problem. All right, here is my issue. There are There is a project I backed for a card game version of a board game uh, based on World War II. Um, I don't know if you guys ever heard the game Heroes of Normandy. Um, because I kind of like it. It's kind of a pulpy, lighthearted beer and pretzels game. right? Is this the Heroes of Normandy spelled uh, yes. D-I-E at the end? Okay, I, yeah. I know what game we're talking okay. about. So, my rant is if you sell a product and say it's shipped... Communicate with your people that it's shipped. 
Don't say, well, we're shipping it to a certain country, in my case, the U.S., and then disappear. But then when you go on their website, they're selling the bloody game. At retail? At retail. All right, right. Then when you reach out to them and are very polite and say, hey, just want to let you know I have not received it. You updated us in June that it was being shipped out and nothing. You do it on their Kickstarter page. You do it on their Facebook page. You email them directly through their site. Nothing. And there are several people who have had issues in the communications, you know, if you look on the Kickstarter page. You want... Look, Wargaming yeah. is a fragile genre. It's a, fr it's, it's a non-necessity. I yeah. don't need Wargaming to survive. It is a pleasure. It's a hobby. It's... A need, it's a, you know, it's not a need, it's a want. And when you go and start pissing people off because you don't, you know, I have no problem if you say, look, you know what, we're having a problem with the shipping, it might be delayed, fine. I get that, it happens. But when you're an established company and you have made games and you put one game on the back burner to support a game from a large miniatures manufacturer that does not do historicals. They do fantasy and sci-fi. We won't mention their name. And you create a game instantly for them, but then come to us who backed your Kickstarter and, and cry poverty and then somehow come up with funding to finish the project and say it's being shipped out and then disappear, but then promote it. I, I, it, it just... If I could play Sergeant Hartman right now, oh, there you go. <laughs> I would be all over this. This is a huge Charlie Foxtrot. Okay. Um, oh, yeah. You know, again, I don't mean to speak bad about any company. I never do that because we all know a lot of these people, these companies are just one or two people that are struggling through to survive and make a quality product. You look like the kind of person that would sell something on Kickstarter and then put it on retail and not even have the common courtesy to... All right, there he is. That's the PG version. Uh, I really just want to go off totally. But you know what? All I'm asking people, and I'm going to just come out and say, this is Devil Pig Games. Talk to your supporters. These are the people who buy your products. Talk to them. Let them know if there's an issue. Kickstarter has killed too many good companies. It really has. I mean, look at Hawk War Games. Dave is a great guy. He had a great game in Drop Fleet and Drop Zone Commander. And then I think he just got too overwhelmed with, with Kickstarter. And, you know, he got sold out, bought out by TT Combat. Um, Ninja Division, same thing. You know, they're kind of just struggling because they've overreached. It's just story after story of people who've gone to Kickstarter with these big ideas and then it becomes unreal you know unattainable because of overruns and costs that they didn't realize wasn't that whole um protos uh alien yes. versus predator sort of yeah yeah that that one is you know yeah, okay. i have to say we got all our stuff but i guess there's still people out there who haven't the the AVP thing was not just Protoss, though. It was 20th Century Fox and the licensing and things like that. There was a whole issue with and I think that AVP is that ended up on a Kickstarter page. Yeah. Down because we talked to the people that run Protoss, you know, because um, that's where Dawn got her mini made, was through Protoss when she did a custom yeah. mini. Um, and they were really great. And they were very open and said, look, you know, yes, we're struggling with this game. You know, there were, because they're not experienced 
business people per se. They were engineers and made know how to make minis, you know, from a manufacturing level. But they had no experience dealing with big studios, i.e. 20th Century Fox. And what and they again could have done a much better job of communicating with their backers and customers saying, look, every little thing we do in this project has to go back to 20th Century Fox for approval. And it's a time-consuming process because it's not like there's a guy sitting at 20th Century Fox waiting for them to send stuff, checks it, immediately sends it back. Oh, no, it's got to go to 20th Century Fox. It's got to go through their production people. It's got to go through their legal people. And distancing, marketing. Yeah, and marketing and everything else. And it's not like 20th Century Fox just has nothing going on in their studio, right? They have all these projects. So it's not like it's a priority. So I think the biggest issue for Kickstarter and a lot of these business people is they don't communicate. And that's what pisses people off. And I think a lot of it is because they get afraid when they have to tell them, I'm not making my deadlines, I have this problem, I over, you know, underestimated costs, and I need help. And, they, and it just becomes easier to pretend it, there isn't an issue. So that is my drill sergeant rant today. That is the G slash PG version. Um, I think in the future I'm going to do a little heading. We won't have a rant every week because, you know, we don't want to bring down people. But when something comes up and we have to rant, we will put a disclaimer in there going, Prepare your ears, hide the children, because the drill sergeant's <laughs> going to go off. So, um, awesome. as any last well, thoughts before we close out the show? I, I was going to say that to, to, to almost counter, uh, I don't want to say counter, but whatever, to, to kind of cleanse the palate after that. Um, my dad's birthday is coming up, so I think it was you guys who uh, recommended Knuckle Duster Miniatures to me for 40-millimeter yes. Old West. Yeah. I yeah. bought I bought uh, three sets of miniatures off of them, I think, on Wednesday. I think it was Wednesday. And within five minutes, I had my first um, alert or whatever from the post office saying, this is shipped. And uh, not 48 complete hours later, I had those minis in my mailbox. It was that fast. It was. I was. I, I was like my, my dad's birthday's at the end of the month, and I was sitting there making the order, going, "Oh man, I probably waited too long. These aren't going to get to me in time," you know, because you know my dad has like his big model railroad set from the old west or whatever. Mm -hmm. So and he's not into wargaming, and I can go ahead and talk about it here on the stream because he never listens to the podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> but. Um, what was I going to say? Uh, yeah, so I was trying to get this, you know, these minis, um, you know, ahead of time so I could maybe get them started. Probably, I'm going to go see him for a weekend. You know, we usually like work in his workshop. I can paint these minis while we talk and, you know, drink beer or whatever. Um, it's like a nice little, you know, bonding thing that we have lately is, you know, picking at this uh, big model railroad table that he's got. Um and it's an HO, I don't even know how mail, how, how railroad scales work. It's 1 to 48. So we're looking at roughly 40 millimeters. So I went to, yeah, I went to Knuckle Duster. I bought uh, Saloon Girls, Outlaws, and um, one more, uh, Cowboys. You know, three minis per, per box or whatever, or whatever, per bag. Nine total minis. And I, I had them like within maybe, maybe 50 hours. Mm-hmm. I think I got them out like I ordered them at noon on Wednesday. I had them by you know 2 p.m. on Friday. It was insanely fast. Um, no muss, no fuss, no problems. The website worked great. It was an absolutely. Um, I mean, I'm used to ordering from other companies. I won't mention the name, but it's just like you know, five weeks later, you tell me it's on back order. 
you know, thanks guys. You know, I could have bought somewhere else by now, but of course you didn't want me to buy somewhere else. Did you? Um, yeah, these guys were super fast. They all in stock. They got it to me, you know, with absurd speed. Um, they're somewhere up in Illinois. They're right by you. I think Yeah, they're, uh, um, they're outside of Urbana, you know, you okay. So yeah. Uh, Forrest is a great guy. Um, I know Forrest, you know, we see him at all the local conventions here. Uh, he's at Adepticon and Little Wars and things like that. So, I have his original uh, game called uh, Desperado. Uh, you know, it was a whole set with cowboys and buildings and stuff, and then he came out with the new one. Um, and, it, yeah, minis are great. He went from traditional sculpting to digital now, so the minis are even better than what they used to be. Um, but, yeah, he's, he's kind of like a one-man show, so he does everything himself. So, really good guy. I highly recommend his stuff. Absolutely. So, that's awesome. Uh, pass on best wishes to your father for the birthday from all of us. Yep. Uh, Ralph, yep. you got anything to finalize on the final thoughts? No, I've got nothing. Wow, you're just a nothing bundle of excitement this week, Ralph. <laughs> I am indeed, yes. <laughs> But uh, I just want to say um, I apologize no, to the guys. I've got nothing. It's coming. It's also my first. Yeah. So uh, I wanted to apologize to the guys oh, at Dish Dash so. Publishing. I did have the rolls and the cards for the modern set. I just was an idiot and forgot. Um, so uh, they were kind enough to send me uh, a, a new email with the, the rules and everything. So. I am definitely. We're going to do a, a, a present arm. No, not a present arms. A CQB of uh, some playthrough of um, that. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to finish painting up the ultra moderns that I have and we'll get uh, a playthrough on that. I'm looking to do a pres uh, present arms hobby live stream. I really have been inspired by um, Luke Town. I think that's his name. The guy that does Boulder Creek Railway. Uh, it's a YouTube video. He does terrain. I mean, ultra realistic terrain. Uh, I was watching him this morning uh, while I was having my coffee and I think I'm going to do a uh, present arms on some terrain for a table. So uh, build a whole game table. I don't know what genre yet, you know, as far as whether it be like geared towards a city or whatever, but we'll figure it out. And then, Jim, I know you've got some live streaming. I'm going to put up some I'm going to start doing some uh, event posting in Facebook to remind people when we're live streaming. OK, um, so mm -hmm. for Sundays. So we'll do event reminders for everybody. Um, I definitely want to get our Ghost Ops RPG live. And, you know, Ralph, if you're struggling with time because of work, um, I'll see if I can jump in and help you out on that. But I want to start getting people active in that as well. Um, so mm -hmm. I, I think that's going to wrap our show for today. Uh, thank you guys for uh, another great show. Uh, and, of course, we want to thank our Patreon supporters. Um, at the team level, we have Anthony Watts and Lawrence Townsend. Uh, our preferred members, Jennifer Lemon, and then at the producer level, Dennis Cross, Dylan Asmus, JJ, and Rasmus. And of course, we definitely want to thank our new big-time sponsor of the SitRep Podcast, and that's Black Sight Studios. So again, if you're looking for quality, pre-colored terrain, check out their site. So until the next time, guys, we will see you soon. And remember, we're going live. And you'll be able to participate. So we'll see you guys later. Take care.